Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. How did a maritime forest between the rivers Ashley and Cooper become the urban streetscape we call Charleston? The spark of this long transformation occurred in 1672, when South Carolina's Surveyor General drew a plan for a town on the verdant peninsula called Oyster Point. Although John Culpepper's model of the town was imperfectly inscribed on the forested landscape, the grid of streets and lots created 350 years ago framed the growth of Charleston and continued to shape the way residents and visitors experienced the Palmetto City in the 21st century. Historians use the phrase grand model to describe the original plan for a town at Oyster Point that became New Charlestown in 1680. The plan included approximately 350 lots and a grid of nearly a dozen unnamed streets arrayed over the southernmost portion of the peninsula, bounded on the southwest by the Ashley River, on the southeast by the Cooper River, and bounded on the north by an imaginary line running through the center of modern Bufane Street and continuing eastward to the Cooper River. The Grand Model is an important document and concept in the early history of both Charleston and South Carolina. Any conversation about the early physical and cultural landscape of the city inevitably refers to some facet of the Grand Model, and the colonial-era plan set a precedent for subsequent town planning across South Carolina. In short, the story of the creation and execution of the Grand Model is required reading for everyone who enjoys walking the century-old streets of Charleston. Prelude to the Town Plan The Grand Model was the culmination of two years of experience within the first English settlement in South Carolina, which commenced in April 1670 on the west side of the Ashley River. At a place they called Albemarle Point, the first colonists constructed shelters, defensive fortifications, and laid out gardens for a community they called Charlestown. The Lord's Proprietors of Carolina, who owned the colony and had financed the expedition from London, expressed disappointment with the geographic limitations of the initial town site and its lack of formal planning. In several letters written during 1670 and 1671, the proprietors directed Governor William Sale and other officials to seek a larger, healthier site for a future town that could serve as the principal port and capital of South Carolina. At some point between his arrival in April 1670 and his death in March 1671, Governor Sale informally reserved the southernmost part of the peninsula between the rivers Ashley and Cooper, then known as Oyster Point, as a potential site for a future port town. Contemporaries estimated that the site in question contained approximately 600 acres, a figure that proved to be approximately 50% higher than the actual acreage. In letters sent to South Carolina in 1671 and 1672, the Lord's proprietors in England reiterated their desire that the settlers should establish a proper port town. They included several specifications, crafted principally by Lord Anthony Ashley Cooper and his secretary, philosopher John Locke, regarding the dimensions and physical arrangement of an ideal community. 
This transatlantic conversation was part of a larger utopian dream envisioned by Ashley and Locke, which they described as the grand model for a new social hierarchy within the Carolina colony. Most of their lofty ideals proved impractical in the frontier wilderness, but the proprietors manifest their civic ideals in a scale drawing sent in 1671. When the place for the town is chosen by those who are to dwell in it, wrote the proprietors that may, the surveyor shall lay out streets according to the model herewith sent, as near as the particular situation of the place will admit. The model in question does not survive, but a brief contemporary description of it, written by John Locke, provides invaluable details. The proprietors desired the individual lots of their ideal town to stretch between two streets, with each house facing a front street and having a rear outlet to the next street behind. This description seems to indicate a preference for the long, narrow, burgage lots that characterized the traditional English towns and villages laid out in medieval times. Rather than constraining these burgage lots to a linear high street as found in English towns, the proposed town lots of South Carolina were to fill blocks of land within a perpendicular grid of streets and alleys. The notes of John Locke indicate that the proprietors, or perhaps just Lord Ashley, desired the town's graduated streets to range in breadth from 80 to 30 feet, dividing the town into squares measuring 600 feet on each side. The desired port town was also to include a vacant space 80 feet wide along the riverfront for a wharf for the public use of the town. A reservation of 200 acres adjacent to the town was to provide a common for planting and pasturage. Finally, the ideal town was to include a highway connecting it to the neighboring plantations and future towns created within the colony. Lord Ashley revised his ideal dimensions in September 1671 when he suggested that the proposed town should include six score squares, that is, 120 squares, of 300 foot each to be divided one from the other by streets and alleys. In June 1672, the Lord's proprietors repeated their expectation that, quote, the people shall plant, that is, settle, in towns, which are to be laid out into large, straight, and regular streets, with sufficient room left for a wharf if it be upon a navigable river, end quote. South Carolina's provincial government signaled their intention to fulfill such instructions in January 1672 by resolving to establish a town on the Oyster Point Peninsula reserved earlier by Governor Sale, encompassing all of the land to the south of a marked tree. In a letter to Lord Ashley, Provincial Secretary Joseph Dalton described that site as the key point of the surrounding landscape within Charleston Harbor. As I described in episode number 244, the government likely paid the Etowan Indians at this time to remove from the peninsula to the land on the northwest side of the Cooper River. On the 21st of February, 1672, John Cumming and his wife Afra and Henry Hughes appeared before the Grand Council of South Carolina with a proposition 
They had already staked a claim to several hundred acres immediately north of the marked tree, stretching across the peninsula from the Ashley to the Cooper River, and other settlers had staked similar claims to the land to their north. Cumming and Hughes offered to give the southernmost half of their claim, approximately 150 acres, to the government for use as a common for the proposed town at Oyster Point. The members of South Carolina's Grand Council accepted this offer, but nothing was done immediately. After a delay of several months, during which time the Etowan Indians might have removed from their traditional habitations, the provincial government began to move towards the formal creation of its first large town. On the 27th of July, 1672, Governor John Yeamans issued a warrant directing the Surveyor General, John Culpepper, Quote, to add measure and lay out for a town on the Oyster Point all that point of land there formally allotted for the same, by Governor Sale, to the south of a marked tree formally designed to direct the bounding line of the said town to the south. End quote. Along the northern edge of that reserved land, immediately north of the marked tree, Culpepper was to add approximately 150 acres of the land across the breadth of the peninsula, Quote, formally marked to be laid out for Mr. Henry Hughes, Mr. John Cumming, and Afra his wife, and James Robinson, end quote, which was to serve as the town's common. The two tracts were estimated to encompass a total of 700 acres. On the same day, the governor issued additional warrants instructing the surveyor general to measure the lands immediately north of the town, claimed by John Cumming, Henry Hughes, and a succession of other settlers up the remaining part of the peninsula. This was the beginning of the formalization of informal claims made sometime earlier. Surveying the Landscape the task of creating a town plan fell to John Culpepper, South Carolina's surveyor general, but he likely incorporated suggestions from the colony's senior officials. During the spring or summer of 1672, Governor Yeamans and the Grand Council of South Carolina probably shared with Mr. Culpepper the several letters from the Lord's proprietors expressing their desires for the colony's future port town. We don't know for certain that Culpepper reviewed these documents, but we do know that he ignored the various dimensions articulated therein. The generous specifications from the proprietors anticipated the selection of a large, homogeneous landscape bordering a navigable river, which proved impractical in the low-lying coastal landscape occupied by the early settlers of South Carolina. John Culpepper's 1672 plan rejected the letter of the model sent by the proprietors in 1671, but embraced the spirit of their recommendations. Before creating a realistic plan for the proposed town at Oyster Point, Culpepper had to develop an understanding of the site's general characteristics. Such work required him to walk the length and breadth of the forested peninsula to identify the boundaries between highland and marshland at both high and low tides, to determine how much of the available real estate was suitable for human occupation. 
In his preliminary work on this project, Culpepper probably collected sufficient data and measurements to draw an outline of the high land on the peninsula, stretching from the southern tip of Oyster Point to the marked tree standing nearly three-quarters of a mile to the north, and from the banks of the Cooper River westward nearly two-thirds of a mile to the sprawling marshlands of the Ashley River. That area encompassed approximately 300 acres, a significantly smaller quantity of land than previously estimated. Culpepper's outline of the habitable land at the southern tip of Oyster Point embraced a sandy, arrow-like point to the south, leading to a meandering line of high land along the eastern shore fronting the Cooper River. The northern boundary was a straight line across the peninsula from the Cooper to the Ashley River that now forms the center line of modern Bufane Street. Along the western frontier, the boundary line followed the edge of highland against the marsh of the Ashley River, marked roughly today by modern Wilson and Franklin Streets, part of Savage Street and Council Street. The plan also embraced some questionable terrain around the southwestern tip of the peninsula that was underwater at high tide, between modern Council Street and the southeastern point of White Point Garden. Culpepper's inclusion of such property seems to indicate that he and his contemporaries envisioned future occupants filling, raising, and improving their property to render it safe from the incursion of the tides. In short, this was not an ideal site for a town, but it was the best site that the early English settlers could identify in the vicinity. Designing a Scale Model of the Town Because Culpepper's generation relied heavily on maritime travel, the proposed town at Oyster Point required a commodious landing, or key, for ships, cargo, and passengers. A survey of the available landscape and water depth around the peninsula revealed a logical choice for the required landing, a nearly straight line of high land fronting the Cooper River between two former creeks known today as Water Street and Market Street. This half-mile stretch of waterfront, now part of East Bay Street, probably formed the starting point for Culpepper's scaled drawing of the town plan. From a point at the center of this Cooper River landing, the surveyor drew a broad, perpendicular street extending westward to the Ashley River that was destined to become the town's principal east-west thoroughfare, now Broad Street. Near the center of the available high ground between the two rivers, Culpepper drew a second street of the same breadth, perpendicular to the Capitol Street, that was destined to become the town's principal north-south thoroughfare and highway, connecting it to the countryside, now Meeting Street. At the intersection of the town's two principal streets, Culpepper inserted a traditional feature common to all market towns in England— a market square. This broad area, encompassing two and a half acres, was reserved for public use, though not exclusively for market purposes. The proper names Market Place and Market Square coexist in surviving colonial descriptions of this site, but both names faded from local memory by the turn of the 19th century as Charleston became less British and more American. 
The erection of four public buildings on the four corners of Market Square prompted 20th century observers to describe the intersection of broad and meeting streets as the four corners of the law. That touristy name remains in circulation today because few recall the original name Market Square, and few recognize that the original square survives on the landscape of 21st century Charleston. We'll talk more about the Market Square in a future program. Culpepper then subdivided the remaining acreage by creating a grid of additional streets that were both perpendicular and subordinate to the principal pair. The direction sent by the Lord's proprietors differentiated between primary, secondary, and tertiary streets. Accordingly, Culpepper's model of the town included a secondary tier of smaller streets to the south, east, north, and west of the Market Square, which subdivided the remaining landscape into squares or blocks of similar, though not entirely regular, proportions. We recognize these streets today as Trad, Church, Queen, and King Streets. Shorter tertiary streets, farther removed from the Market Square, include portions of those currently known as Archdale, Legree, Lamble, and Pinckney. Culpepper then subdivided the blocks into hundreds of smaller building lots, most of which contained roughly one-half of an acre. Owing to the varying size and shapes of the blocks, the proportions of the resulting half-acre lots vary greatly. Some were nearly square, others long and thin. A few were trapezoidal, others nearly triangular, and a few were simply irregular blobs of leftover land. In short, there was no uniformity of lot shape in Culpepper's plan. Extant copies of the Grand Model and the associated records of grants and property conveyances demonstrate that the original town plan included approximately 350 lots, a handful of which contained several acres. The precise number of lots is ambiguous, however, because of ancient defects in the numbering of the lots and various numbering mistakes recorded in ancient legal conveyances. John Culpepper probably completed his town plan on a sheet of paper or parchment at some point in the autumn of 1672. His grid of streets and lots filled all of the available highland between the southern tip of Oyster Point and the marked tree that defined the town's northern boundary, but it did not leave room for a common. Culpepper's omission of this traditional civic feature, deemed necessary by the Lord's proprietors, was probably due to the offer made by John Cumming and Henry Hughes in February 1672 to cede half of their claimed land, estimated at 150 acres, immediately north of the marked tree for use as a common. We can surmise, therefore, that Culpepper's plan reflected an assumption that the town's common would exist to the north of the territory encompassed within his grand model. If that hypothesis is accurate, then it seems likely that Culpepper completed his design for the town by the first week of September 1672. On the ninth day of that month, John Cumming appeared before South Carolina's Grand Council and rescinded his earlier offer to donate land for a town common. 
by offering to sacrifice part of his land the previous February, Cumming and his associate, Henry Hughes, had intended to set an example to induce those who claimed land to the north to reciprocate by sacrificing a similar portion of their land, thereby allowing Cumming and Hughes and their neighbors to simply shift all of their successive claims several hundred feet to the northward. That plan did not materialize, Cumming informed the council, because various neighbors to the north had altogether refused to follow his example. Unwilling to sacrifice half of the acreage he claimed while his neighbors protected their parcels, Cumming and, by association, Hughes withdrew the offer to donate 150 acres to create a common for the town. Although Culpepper's model for the town at Oyster Point did not include the large common envisioned by the Lord's proprietors, we can discern a smaller substitute in the northwest corner of his plan. Between the western end of modern Queen Street and the town's northern boundary, now Bufane Street, the surveyor included a broad vacant area to the west of modern Logan Street. This site, containing approximately 10 to 14 acres, was apparently used for various public purposes during the town's early years, but several private grants made in 1698 reduced it to a four-acre reservation, then known as the Old Churchyard. The original draft of Culpepper's scaled plan does not exist, and it was probably destroyed in the late 17th century as later surveyors revised and amended the initial design. The South Carolina Department of Archives and History in Columbia holds four copies of the grand model, including two parchment copies in poor condition that might date from the turn of the 18th century, and two paper copies created more than a century after Culpepper's original plan. The South Carolina Historical Society holds a fifth copy, a parchment thought to date from 1725, a reproduction of which the Society published in 1908. Transferring the model to the ground. The town plan drafted in 1672 was a scaled representation of the actual landscape in question. As such, it embodied a set of tacit instructions that the surveyor general and or his deputies had to translate and transfer onto the physical landscape. The tools required for such work in the late 17th century were simple but effective. They almost certainly used a circumferenter, a portable instrument featuring a compass mounted atop a wooden staff or tripod, which allowed the surveyor to measure angles between fixed points on the landscape. To calculate the distance between points, they used a surveyor's chain measuring 66 feet divided into 100 individual links. The chief obstacle to the surveyors who inscribed the town plan on the ground at Oyster Point was the landscape itself. A maritime forest covered the peninsula, including palmettos, live oaks, pines, and all manner of native brush and ground cover. The nascent English settlement could scarcely afford to divert the labor and resources necessary to clear a 300-acre town site. So the men tasked with laying out the streets and lots might have followed footpaths established by the former Etowan inhabitants. 
the surveyors probably commenced their work along the Cooper River waterfront, driving a series of wooden stakes in the ground to establish the outline of the half-mile-long wharf that would become East Bay Street. The area reserved for this public landing likely measured 66 feet wide, the length of one surveyor's chain during the 1670s and 1680s, but the creation of a brick wharf wall along the east side of the wharf in the 1690s narrowed the space to less than 60 feet. That half-mile-long brick wall was demolished after the American Revolution, however, and East Bay Street finally attained its mostly uniform width of 66 feet in 1787. Turning westward from the center of the Bay Street in the autumn of 1672, the surveyors staked the breadth and trajectory of the broad thoroughfare that became known as Broad Street and the commodious perpendicular analog that became Meeting Street. Both of these streets also measured 66 feet in breadth, the convenient length of the measuring chain. The rest of the surveyors' work probably followed the same sequence described earlier. Using John Culpepper's scale model as their guide, they laid out the town's secondary streets, Trad, Queen, Church, and King Streets, which were all 33 feet wide, or half a chain in width. Despite the obstructive presence of numerous trees and native brush, the task of outlining the town's streets and blocks followed a rather straightforward procedure. Far more time and effort was required to subdivide the several blocks into approximately 350 lots, most of which contained one-half of an acre. The combined work of surveying, measuring, and driving stakes to outline the streets and lots probably consumed many weeks, if not months, and might have continued into the spring of 1673. It might have been completed before July 1673, when South Carolina's Grand Council noted that, quote, John Culpepper, Surveyor General, hath run away from this settlement, end quote. Mr. Culpepper left Charleston for reasons unknown and settled in North Carolina, where he led an uprising in 1677 now known as Culpepper's Rebellion. Amendments to the Grand Model extant records demonstrate that at least a few settlers were residing at Oyster Point during the mid-1670s, but the earliest surviving records of the provincial government assigning specific town lots to individuals date from the spring of 1678. The reasons behind this five-year gap are now something of a mystery. The settlers and their leaders might have been preoccupied with other, more pressing activities during that time. Or perhaps Mr. Culpepper left the colony before finishing the work of laying out the town's streets and lots. Whatever the reason, the paper trail of settlement at Oyster Point commenced in earnest in 1678. In the spring of 1680, the unnamed town fulfilled the hopes of the Lord's proprietors by becoming New Charlestown the official capital and principal port of South Carolina. As the town expanded in the latter years of the 17th century, subsequent surveyors added text to their copies of the Grand Model to identify new features. The surviving copies include labels for Colleton Square, granted in early 1681, 
Archdale Square, 1683. Schenkings Square, 1688. Mr. Hobson's Four Lots in 1690. And Captain Hewitt's Square of Ten Lots, 1694. During these same years, various property owners began creating new streets and alleys by mutual consent to facilitate movement through the town. Elliott Street, for example, was created in the spring of 1683 by combining a slice of 10 feet from lot numbers 10 and 37 with a slice of 10 feet from lot numbers 11, 12, 13, 26, and 27. Similarly, Unity Alley was created in the mid-1690s by taking a few feet from the northern edge of lot number 17 and from the southern edge of lot number 19. Later generations in the 18th and 19th centuries created many more convenient passageways not included in John Culpepper's original design. The most significant alteration of the Grand Model occurred during the second quarter of the 18th century, however. A resurvey of urban Charleston, ordered by the provincial legislature in 1722, identified significant questions about the faulty placement of several streets and numerous lot boundaries within the outline of the Grand Model. Surveying errors made within the forested environment of Oyster Point in the early 1670s had distorted the trajectory of various lines. Most of the errors affected the shape and size of lots in the northern third of the town plan, from Queen Street to the northern boundary, but the south end of Meeting Street was also skewed to the west. While Culpepper's scaled model of the town plan had embraced slightly less than 300 acres of land, the area staked out on the ground covered slightly more than 300 acres. Because the town's earliest settlers clustered within the east-central part of the town, between the south sides of Trad and Queen Streets, they apparently overlooked the surveying mistakes of the 1670s for several decades. The construction of defensive fortifications in 1704 around 62 acres of the east-central part of the town masked the heirs for a further generation. Political dysfunction during the late 1720s stifled debate of these issues until 1733, when the South Carolina General Assembly slowly began to address the defects in the lots and streets in the northern part of the town plan that had existed for 60 years. A significant example of that work was the adoption of a revised path and a revised name for Dock Street, which officially became Queen Street in April 1734. After several years of rectification work, Surveyor General George Hunter created a revised map in 1746 that finally settled the lot boundaries in the northwestern quadrant of the town plan. His work, which reshaped Dutchtown and the area now known as the French Quarter, deserves a program of its own. The Legacy of the Grand Model The early inhabitants of New Charlestown, as it became known in 1680, began subdividing their half-acre lots almost immediately, a practice that led to the profusion of smaller parcels that we see in the city today. As the subdivided lots changed hands during the late 17th and 18th centuries, however, the property owners of Charleston continued to refer to the original lot numbers in the paper records of their real estate transactions. 
That tradition began to wane in the 1780s during the American Revolution. After capturing Charleston in May 1780, agents of the British Army assigned address numbers to all the buildings south of Boundary Street, now called Calhoun Street. The numbering system deployed in 1780 evolved greatly over the ensuing years, but street address numbers quickly replaced grand model lot numbers in the records of real estate conveyances during the latter years of the 18th century. Memory of the grand model faded in Charleston as the city's footprint expanded to the north and west, filling tracts of land and marsh that John Culpepper had excluded from his original design. Despite these changes, the town plan created for Oyster Point in 1672 remains embedded within the landscape of 21st century Charleston, complete with corrections made in the 1730s and 1740s to settle ancient surveying errors. The grand model of Charleston is an important but often overlooked asset in the city's arsenal of history. The slightly irregular plan represented a compromise between the lofty aspirations of the Lord's proprietors and the practical reality of the available terrain. John Culpepper's scaled plan was imperfectly executed on the ground, and a succession of later inhabitants modified the plan to suit their needs. Its streets were considered commodious three and a half centuries ago, but now seem narrow and quaint. Civic leaders planning other towns in South Carolina, past and present, have long looked to Charleston for ideas about how and how not to organize a community. Despite the city's founding flaws, throngs of visitors flock to the Palmetto City every year. Why? Because a ramble down one of Charleston's storied streets is an exercise in time travel. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.